Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, some best practices. Lock your door, close your windows, cover your mirrors, and grab a little bit of that tobacco to protect yourself. We're back with Deddy yet again. Say hello. Good evening, everyone. So, I think we had some more to do with the WEF Global Risks Report. Is that correct? Yes. Davos's projections for 2023 and beyond. So, let's pick right back up. You said we had missed a spot. Why don't we get back to that and see what we missed? So, this pertains to what has been recently occurring in the global economy and the rolling banking crisis. And there are two particular sections that will ring quite familiar to those who have been following along recent events. They wrote, the threat of a sovereign debt crisis has been brewing with public debt growing as interest rates have fallen. Governments have leveraged cheap money to invest in future growth and help stabilize distressed financial systems, providing massive fiscal support during the pandemic and to shield household and businesses from the current cost of living crisis. And then the infamous, however, high levels of debt may not be sustainable under tighter economic conditions. The rapid and widespread normalization of monetary policies accompanied by a stronger U.S. dollar and weaker risk sentiment has already increased debt vulnerabilities that are likely to remain heightened for years. Stagflation on a global scale combined with historically high levels of public debt could have vast consequences. Even with the softer landing, the consequences of debt-trapped diplomacy and rockier restructuring, restructuring raise the risk of debt distress and even default, spreading to more systemically important markets and paralyzing the global economic system. So I thought in particular that was important to highlight because I think I'm going to go absolutely batty if I hear another person say, well, no one knew this was how are we supposed to know that interest rates would rise as all of these banks have these bonds and treasuries on their books? And the refrain that I've heard time and time again is, well, Silicon Valley Bank was not sticking to Banking Regulation 101, however, and I just find that to be insulting to the general public. These are all financial Bank was under the auspices of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. Their CEO was on it. The San Francisco Federal Reserve has billions of dollars and many economists they hire, and they have oversight over banks like Silicon Valley Bank. So we're just in the endless cycle of being told the reason the system is the way it is is because it must be, and don't worry, people who work very hard and on their merit they're you know, much more enlightened than you and they're a harder worker and they're smarter you know they know what they're doing so you should trust them and just accept that this is the best possible version of our world then things collapse and all of a sudden it's well it's quite complicated and no one could have known and mistakes were made but we promise later on 
will do some form of regulation or someone will be punished. And it seems like we're in this endless cycle. And even if they say, you know, we know this is a major possible rolling crisis. And even if you are regulated by many of the top economists in the country, this still happens. And it's just becoming increasingly difficult to reconcile, I think, contrasting realities in the minds of even my blood pressure my blood pressure is just so high (laughs) i can feel it boiling in my veins how many anonymous schizophrenics need to shout about the danger to this before we are ready to admit that it is an actual systemic issue in the way the leftoids mean it and just admit that the Austrians were right, and it's okay for businesses to fail. Oh my goodness. And just even specifically, this ongoing crisis, everyone knew for over 10 years now that we've just had almost zero interest rates. Very, very low interest. And everyone knows, like this is a very basic intro to economics, is then you have to think what happens when that rises, and that's why people spread money around, and that's why banks hedge. And these extremely basic things didn't happen. And you had companies which apparently had so much money, like Roku, that just throwing $500 million into one single account was no big deal. But yes, they need to lose it because, first of all, that's printed trillions of dollars that the Federal Reserve and other central banks, like, to me, that is one of the most glaring examples of being absolutely awash in liquidity and complete neglect of all responsibility. And it's very That upsetting. money exists literally nowhere other than an Excel sheet. And now it's all going to be covered. And I don't know if who's been paying attention, but even this evening, they're really talking about fully covering for a, quote, temporary amount of time all deposits in all U.S. banks, which is, I mean, we might as well. These are the same people who scream about communism all day. I mean, that's actually, that's total communism. What if we just insure $18 trillion, of which maybe $3 trillion actually exists? It's very stressful and upsetting. The interesting thing is they continue on to say that Extended supply-driven inflation could drive more painful interest rate rises even amidst a slowdown in growth, leading to a harder landing and more widespread debt distress. A more systemically important emerging and developing economy could face distress in the coming years, raising the risk of financial contagion. As cautioned by the International Monetary Fund, miscalibration between fiscal and monetary policies could exacerbate this further and in unexpected markets. Questions around the independence of central banks risks de-anchoring market expectations and monetary intervention to counteract inflationary fiscal policies will only heighten the risk of longer economic malaise. So they completely understood where this was going. We are now watching this go in this direction. And it's just very hard because it's rather disheartening. You just feel like, what could you possibly do against such a system that everyone sees just the complete mismatch in what you're told and taught to believe in and what occurs? And at a certain point, it becomes very disillusioning. 
well, that's just it, too, right? We've been strapped onto this rocket, Wiley Coyote style, and we have absolutely no control or influence or say in where it's going. And it's just quite... It's a situation where I don't know where this is going, though. I mean, to me, it seems very clear that... I understand people always say never bet against the dollar. I think you need to say don't bet against the gold reserve currency, which to me is tends to be true, but also global reserve currencies end, and once the dollar reaches the end of the global reserve currency cycle, I, I think it becomes less of an extreme thing to say, well, do you never bet against the dollar? Because it does seem like a multipolar order is forming, and it's forming in a different way than the last major crisis, which, I mean, this is tricky, I would argue COVID in 2020 through 2023 was a major crisis, but the 2008 great financial crisis, I mean, at that point, China was nowhere near where it is now, so there really was no comparable power and economy that could possibly even challenge the USA, so the world just went along with the fallout of the great financial crisis and began this money printing on a massive scale program. But So if I can step in course. here, I'd like to push back just a little oh, bit. Oh, please do. There is the question of China, mm-hmm. and I have to say, despite their extremely strong manufacturing base... Mm-hmm. It seems to me that in observing their internal economy, it is probably just as fake as ours is. They're already at the point where they are deconstructing their ghost cities, aren't they? I think that, and I've said this several times, I do agree that China has, there are issues within China's economy. There's aspects of housing and real estate markets even popping up. Personally, I would argue, and from the numbers I've seen, it is nowhere near on the scale of our interventions. And the other thing, which in a world that runs on fossil fuels and goods and consumptions of goods, the size of their manufacturing base is pretty formidable, and they are continually steadily producing goods. And I think that in a deindustrialized, highly financialized USA that always uses its currency and that currency's strength as its wrecking ball, when the dollar is actually starting to become threatened and when parallel money systems for global use in terms of facilitating global trade and trade between other countries start emerging, that I think it becomes a much more even playing field, especially if they're going to align with countries like Russia and possibly some of these other massive, massive energy, but I call them energy wells, these massive energy wells that have been cut off from the global system. So with that counterpoint to the counterpoint, (laughs) what's the hope then? What does China's actual energy sector look like? Do they have significant oil production of their own? 
or do they rely on the rest of the bricks for their oil? They have some energy, but the thing is, is Russia is exactly north, and they can take Russian oil and use it to turn it into goods. And they have currently, which is what the tension is in this newspaper, is a massive industry of producing energy and electricity out of coal, which many are arguing they want them to start slowing that down, but I don't think that makes sense strategically to China, and also China has said that they're not going to start cutting down their coal because they've seen what has happened to other countries who have followed what U.S. and EU demands. Uh, they saw what happened to South Africa. What we're currently seeing unfold further is South Africa, was, which is a massive producer and exporter of coal, was given these large sums of money by countries in the European Union to stop producing coal in this great climate move. And now the same countries that paid them, for example, Germany, to stop their coal economy are now furiously digging for their own coal. And South Africa is in a pretty serious energy crisis. And before people jump, I know it's much more complicated than that. In the South African energy crisis, economic political crisis, it's much larger than coal, but that is an example of how the calculus all across the world is changing. And people are saying, is it worth that $700 million payout to then become trapped? And if you have massive countries like Russia, Iran, Venezuela, who are looking to do business, why not take their fuel, even if it's dirty fuel, use it to move our economies and to create goods and sell them, which gives your economy momentum and it grows larger, which gives you more power and your currency more power. And if enough countries follow these new alignments, you could actually have a very viable challenge to the US and the Euro, which I will say, dollar and euro still dominate global finance somewhat, depending on the zone. But for the first time in a very long time, there are contenders rising who do have the fundamentals that could start to give them the ability to form new unions and possibly introduce new currencies backed by exciting new products. Now, I think it's interesting that you use the word contenders, though, because that's something I wanted to talk about here for a second, too. I'm sure you know how this works in boxing and MMA, even if you're not an active consumer of those sports. Contenders have to fight each other before they get a chance at the title belt. And I think an interesting place to look at just that phenomenon there's this assumption you were making that the Chinese would just be able to get Russian energy support. But didn't Russia just host a whole number of African national leaders? And what is the chance that there's going to be a neo-colonial conflict over Africa between Russia and China, if not even more of the BRICS? I think there absolutely will be. Um, fortunately for Africa, for a long time now, the entire world has always 
wondered Africa and gone after the immense resources. I think that at the current moment, and I understand from personally and some of the voices of history, it's true that Russia tends to end us. And I believe we've covered this before. Russia tends to, in the end, side with what we call, quote unquote, the West. It tends to save Europe at the last moment or a millennium or eras point. I think at the current moment, what's different and why I'm, I'm personally cautious on thinking that some of these other contending countries like Russia or China or Brazil would have a fight amongst themselves is that the US and its allies have existentially threatened both Russia and China. So there are multiple countries that we have threatened and pushed to the point where they feel that their very existence is in the balance. And I think that is what is driving these multiple nations who historically have maybe had friction or haven't had that much common ground to work together because they're already existentially threatened. So it's like a very extreme nothing to lose situation. And I know that this sounds dramatic, but we have seen it play out in policy. We have seen it play out in propaganda. And I think it's very real. And I think that's why we're going to, we are seeing and will continue to see, I guess, quote unquote, strange bedfellows because they are at the point of being existentially threatened, which in that point you already have almost nothing to lose. So. And I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I definitely get what you're driving at. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. Russia is also the country that came to us and wanted to see if we could find an agreement to nuke China together. I'm not denying that. Things, Russia and China (laughs) have, and anytime you have two large powers who are right on each other's borders, that's always... There's always tension and conflict. And the Soviets and the CCP had a very complicated relationship. And we use that to undermine both of them. We went to China with Kissinger and the Shanghai Kuomintang. But I think we're at the point now where after seeing what happened and how we backstabbed them in the Shanghai Communique and how Russia views the breakup of the USSR and what they felt were many broken promises and many crimes done against them in the 1990s by NATO, that they are both feeling both powerful and threatened, which can be, uh, to me, a very... possibly very explosive combination. Now, despite being the least neocon person on the planet, I will let a little American patriotism continue to shine through here. Uh A little bit more adversarial episode than we've had in the past. Oh, I'm excited. How much of Russia, how much of Russia is dependent on the personality cult and police state that Putin has cultivated. You know, that guy doesn't have forever either. I agree. And he's been trying and failing to pick a successor for the better part of a decade now. 
have several thoughts on this. So, Russian Federation is very complicated and diverse empire, some would argue. It has many different ethnic groups, different religions, and it's an incredibly vast territory. Putin is actually a, a Russian centrist, he's not the most extreme figure at all in, in politics on the right. There are scarier people than Putin who could be in charge of the Russian Federation and its army and nuclear arsenal. I agree that it's still fragile, and of course, anytime you have power concentrated around one man, that creates a, a fragile system because the idea is, well, what happens when they're gone? I think Sergei Lavrov is very much aligned with Putin in many ways, and he's very intelligent. If you watch any of his speeches or interviews, he's very similar to Putin in that he is always willing to have a very flexible view on anything. He can tell you, you know, all 10 views of a topic, even if he's going to stick to his. I think that there is a more robust Kremlin circle than we're seeing. I'm not saying I think everything would be wonderful without Putin, but I do think there are many thinkers and very intelligent people who have a very sophisticated understanding of world politics, from old school Soviets to younger men, and so much of the KGB, uh, former KGB, are still relatively intact. They still have massive networks across Russia, and there's still a certain school of thought that many of them adhere to. Now, without knowing Lavrov myself, mm -hmm. is he one of those ex-KGB, or is he part of a different circle? I'm not sure of his exact deep history. I've just followed him now for about 15 years, and he's very measured, very diplomatic. Obviously, Putin trusts him completely implicitly, and he's become much more vocal recently. I'm not sure what his role was in the USSR. Soviet diplomat. Okay, so he has been a diplomat. I'm sure he might have been KGB. And then in terms of China, that's almost in certain terms, possibly more fragile because Xi Jinping has eliminated vast amounts of opposition to himself. But at the same time, others would argue, well, the CCP has itself its own machine with its own inertia, and they've produced many statesmen and many leaders. Well, despite that he's functionally boss man for life at this point, Nobody's life lasts forever either. <laughs> Though it seems that the CCP is a more resilient state in terms of being able to select successors and grooming underlings to step up than many other states are. And I would also say, I mean, in the United States, you know, we have the median age of our senators is 65 at the moment. And we ourselves have a rather archaic <laughs> political class um, with very similar issues to what happened at the end of the Soviet Union where you have 
a rather static set of beliefs that tumbles along because significantly older than the vast majority of the population group who are pretty rigid and I think that we are not exactly any light to be casting stones about having limited leadership or we are very certainly in a glass house as far as that goes. Pelosi very famously has that photo with Kennedy at the White House. Yeah. And she was the boss of our lower house of legislation until what? Just earlier this year. And that's a common story even in our government, not an uncommon one. So I certainly see what you're saying there. And I would say of these three nations we're talking about, we are probably actually the most fragile because geopolitically, in the terms of real politic, we have absolutely no way to ensure good succession, literally none. And I think, even though I'm always cautious, I've noticed this recently to be popular among certain circles, this idea of just because you notice the word outbreed, which to me is a little macabre, but this idea of, oh, you will naturally win if you have more people or a larger population, which isn't necessarily true because if you just look at recent European history and very small, powerful nations have easily dominated giant nations with large populations, but it is difficult. I mean, just Asia alone, and not even Asia, just China and India, it's over 3 billion the inertia really seems to be moving. I mean, the U.S. has, what do they say, between three and four hundred billion, and the European Union is yeah, seven hundred billion. Yeah, it's still million. between three thirty and three fifty billion. Right, so we have about U.S. and EU. It's a billion versus billions and billions and billions in Asia, and billions of people in now fairly advanced economies and with who want to continue to grow and have massive amounts of room to grow. I mean, to me, the idea that we decided to let Russia, which is just almost the amount of energy in Russia is pretty unbelievable. They just have massive amounts of multiple kinds of fossil fuels and they have massive amounts of materials to produce nuclear fuels. To, to basically corner Russia so they have to sell all of their energy to China and India. I mean, that's asking for, that's like super fueling the Asian economies. And they were happy to just send it cheaply through pipelines directly to Europe. I'm still questioning how wise the decision was. Well, you know, that's on the Russians, though, because according to our best men, they blew up their own pipeline. <laughs> Nord Stream truthers. <laughs> that's the extra, extra late night <laughs> podcast. Is there literally anyone on the planet that uncritically believes that? You know, I will say there's, tr there's probably 150 different permutations of what could have happened. It's not completely impossible Russia did it, even though I put that at a much lower chance of many other There's groups. 150 <laughs> permutations, 149 of them involve us. 
Uh, yeah, the tricky part is, is you need sophisticated operations units tools to do that. And I don't know that I have space in that group. But suspect. You know, that could be a fun movie. Uh, one of those, like, crime papers is eliminate out the suspects one by one. I absolutely love Crime Capers. Guy Ritchie is one of my favorite ah, directors. Mm -hmm. I would watch a Nord Stream Guy Ritchie movie in a heartbeat. You know, I just, what I can't speak in action movies, I still can't believe Top Gun Maverick. I mean, it's almost, it's set to the invisible enemy, but it's almost action for action, a copy of Operation Rockwell when Israel blew up. Iran's, I mean, Iraq's reactor, so it's just kind of wild to think about. Yeah, I did not see that movie because I knew it would just set me off, right? Get my blood boiling. It was very interesting. My father, you know, he wanted to see it, so my brothers and I went with him, but yeah, I just remember thinking this is Operation Opera. It's almost scene for scene. And that's what's funny is some people say, oh, it's just so unrealistic. I was like, well, that's what they did. Um, yeah, this literally yeah. happened. It's not unrealistic. With the mountains and everything. Now, Israel was just involved in some further shenanigans, weren't they? There's a lot. Didn't they take action against Iran just in the last month or two months? They have a lot going on right now. Uh, they are making strikes. I was surprised how quickly what they did with Iran quickly left the news cycle, and now they have a pretty, they have the most serious political, internal political crisis that I've seen in a really long time at the moment. I've never seen protests like that, and it's, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen, because Bibi is a very intelligent person with a lot of connections, and he clearly has a, a plan and a goal he's working towards, but I've never, it, I haven't seen the generals or the former ministers come out like they have been against him. That's very rare to me to see that. To see internal now, dissent. Without getting too into the weeds on it, just how much of that can you tell us detail-wise? Because I kept up with kind of what they were doing with Iran, but not their internal state. So just what is going on over there? Well, Netanyahu has returned as prime minister, and I, you know, there's the hyperbole, always dismantling him. But it's true. He's making serious moves against the judicial system. Some people claim it's full on dismantling. And it's caused a lot of controversy because for many in Israel, they've always considered being a, a democracy with a balance of powers as one of the things that legitimizes their, their state and what they work for. And there are a lot of people who have very different political or religious views who have always said, well, at the end of the day, they like to serve the democracy, and that's what we believe in, and that's why we do what we do. Whether people can argue that or not, but that's how it's viewed internally. And I had it, I can't remember the last time you know, former defense ministers and former ministers came out criticizing uh, political moves. And uh, the other week, some of them were saying, this is where our democracy is under threat, et cetera. And 
hundreds of thousands and half a million Australians throughout the protesting the other week. They continue to protest, but um, I keep saying Benjamin Netanyahu, I don't want to just use his name to make it seem familiar. Uh, he has many networks in military intelligence government. He's a very, very smart man. And I think he clearly has a plan and a goal he's working towards. And I'm not sure what's going to happen in terms of who, quote unquote, wins out. Um, was the other day I made a joke. I said, you know you're in trouble when people are aware that Israel has a president because even the president commented. Other people don't even realize that Israel has a president. <laughs> so, but that's actually like, it, it's true. It's when the president comes out and starts talking, you know, uh-oh, we're in something serious now. Well, and to get back to what we were talking about earlier with Russia, <laughs> it's kind of the same deal, right? Medvedev, or however you pronounce his name, they made a big deal out of him being the president mm -hmm. because people were taking that as a sign that that had made him the chosen successor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... The whole world, I mean, it seems that we're in an actual turning point. And I think that... Part of that is driven by decisions the United States has made where we have turned against people who are once our allies because it gave a strong message to many that either, even if you work with us or even if you disarm or go on the path to that, we're still going, if we want to, we will overturn your government, we will invade, we will kill you. So it's created a lot of desperate people who are, I think, very rightly do not trust anything they're told anymore. And I think the entire approach to Syria was very foolish. And now it has created this lion figure in the Middle East because they've seen, they saw it happen to Gaddafi and they know you have to hold your ground and fight, and you can hold out, and it's possible to do that now. So I think that's part of why things actually have changed. You know, and to that point, it's actually very interesting to me that Assad has been as successful as he has fighting off all of these challengers. You know, that dude is just flailing in every direction because it seems like almost every day there's a new foreign-backed spook militia coming after him and his state apparatus, and here we are a decade on, and he's still holding on. Yes, and I think a lot of people severely underestimated him whenever they said, oh, he's just a dentist, etc. Very, very highly educated man. He comes from a very old family. You know, it's... I think we just, we exercise a lot of arrogance in our foreign policy dealings, and I think that many major miscalculations were made, and especially after what happened. I, I think in the future people will look at Libya and Gaddafi and see that as that was the turning point, because we went in, we dragged him out, his children, everyone, and then it 
that was the message after Saddam, after Gaddafi, after these multiple revolutions that we absolutely have to take the ground and fight because it doesn't matter your planet to be killed either way. So what is there to lose if you try? Now, how much of that sloppy messaging do you think comes from our inability to successfully groom bureaucrats and the decline in influence of both machines and the old money New England family's ability to exert influence and demand posts for their well-heeled scions. I think we breed. Not that that influence has gone away, mind I you, think we because breed, that still happens routinely. We breed bureaucrats a little too well. That's the problem. The bureaucrats, and I think in these boxes and these rubrics that don't exist, I we don't have. I was funny yesterday. Fareed Zakaria was on CNN, and he's almost always completely in the center, and he said, we're too, he did a whole spiel and said, we are so rigid in our policy that we are going to bring ourselves, the USA, he said, it, it's going to end very badly because we're so rigid, and we show that we're not willing to be flexible, and the world is turning away, which for him to say, it was like, oh boy, it's already probably too late because he wouldn't, he wouldn't have. He actually had quite a, a commentary on all of that, but I think the problem is, is we've stabbed so many allies in the back, and we have publicly, viciously murdered so many people who once worked with us in the distant past, or who tried to cooperate with us, that at a certain point, people say, "What? what are we? What's left? Like, what could be worse than that? Now, that's kind of exactly what I'm getting at, though. Because I'm the first person to say, especially here on the Scarlet Thread Society, that feudalism never went away, mm -hmm. right? There's still these families and these organizations that understand things essentially through oaths and bonds and literally in fiefdom, right? They give their minions these positions and expect them to be able to act independently and pass on their tithe. But if these people are trapped in system thinking, that means that they can't be trusted to run a fiefdom themselves, right? They're nothing more than a machine cog. They are no longer rulers in their own right. They are not the count to a duke. They are not the duke to a king. They are pieces of actual machinery. And I guess that's what I was getting at with the ineffective breeding of civil servants within these powered families because they're no longer creating rulers. They are creating mentally challenged minions. has spent a very long time succumbing to its own gravity. The State Department is a very brutal organization. I've heard jokes from people in the Middle East that they, they're less scared of the CIA agent than the State Department agent. Um, I think the problem is people don't realize 
Texas State Department is almost entirely an agent of corporations and commerce. And that is why often the first boots on the ground in many conflicts are establishing the Department of Commerce goes and they make a, a bridge group. And I noticed today, what was I listening to? They directly spoke about this. Oh, they were doing a, a retrospective on the beginning of the Iraq War. NPR was doing this. They spoke to former Iraqi contacts, people they had met, people who are transmitters. And one of the men they spoke to, who was an Iraqi, said, I was there, I watched as our national museum was looted every last thing. And I said, why, why can't we have anyone here? Like, you're America, you know, you have all of these soldiers and you make this big deal, all your money and power. And he said that everyone was at the oil ministry guarding the you know papers and inner workings and that was their main concern and I, he said that was the that experience of a few days of watching all of his national history get just destroyed for no reason when it could have been protected and being told well our our main priority is the oil ministry. I'm sorry, like we need to be able to deal with protecting this. And I think this is now he can say mm -hmm. that, but if I'm remembering how that all went down correctly, wasn't the National Museum one of the first handful of places we went after seizing the airport? This is, I mean, I'm sticking. It was looted. Uh, this is on the ground. People saying what they saw in their contacts. You know, I don't want to. Sure, sure. But I'm I'm just saying I seem to recall pretty specifically that yes, the museum was obviously looted. That part's indisputable. But I just had it in my head for some reason, seeming to remember and then also having read sources that that was one of the first two, three places we went after seizing the airport. I think another tricky thing too is the official narrative we're told is often like days behind happened in Syria too you had US and Canada departments of commerce were in these places almost immediately in Libya it was US Canada were already in Libya before things were happening they were making deals to establish where the oil goes who's buying where what what new trade groups i mean this happens very quickly and it's almost kind of glossed over and the official counts, but it's the same issue in Jordan. We have so many agents in Jordan and so many Commerce and State Department funding. It's complicated because there's always the military aspect, but military tends to be after you've already had a follows the commerce. It's like the people in Africa, these generals say, you know, people come to us and ask us these conflicts. It's like, I'm, I understand I'm fighting an economic war. Even some of these conflicts presented as, you know, oh, brutal tribal, it's over, it's two different companies who are 
sponsoring the wishes to fight each other over access to a rare element that they need. Uh, I mean, you could talk about this for forever, but in my experience, a lot of these wars and conflicts presented as one thing tend to almost all just be downstream of some form of mineral or fuel dispute. Well, right, because those are the resources corporations need, and the corporations with the reach to start these conflicts are also the corporations that are tied to the people who can touch levers of power within the government without being part of the government themselves, I mean, which is what the Scarlet Thread Society is all about in the first place. You know, who really rules what and why? Like in Libya, those girls from that cult, the Seagram heiresses, they were in Libya on the ground because they were there with the Canadian Department of Commerce trying to set up. Like, it's incredibly... <laughs> You know, and here's the Scarlet Thread for us again. Mm -hmm. If you remember, in our first conversation, I titled the episode, Who Was on the Board of What Now? And that still holds true right now. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I remember that was something for me, like the extent that the bombments were involved with Libya. That's That was one of those moments where I realized, oh, this is all <laughs> much different than I assumed. But anyway, we should tie this back. I'm really taking us to the middle of nowhere. Back to Russia. I love it, though. I love it. That's why people come to this show. Back to Russia, China, the new world. I think a multipolar world order is forming. I think it's possible, not just for reasons of convenient alliances, but because when you have multiple large actors under existential threats, that can cause some things to happen. A slightly more esoteric take, uh, not to do too much math, but we're reaching the final exploration maximum limit of the reign of the global reserve currency in 2031. Uh, if the dollar lasts as the global reserve currency after that, it would break, you know, over 600 years of history. So other countries, obviously many people are aware of this, and the famous 250-year reign of an empire is uh, also coming up as we hurdle close, along with China's <laughs> ability to take Taiwan, and uh, Russia clearly really has its eyes set on Crimea, so whenever the sea the sea lines of communication start flipping. That's when I really pay attention because it all runs on global trade. Well, isn't that actually good news for the U.S. empire, though? Because for all the problems we have, there's still no navy in the world that can even come close to touching us, nor in terms of missile technology. People can talk about the Russian and Chinese nuclear arsenals all they want, but, you know, in the right context, I do believe it is actually possible for the U.S. to win a nuclear war. I think a thing under this past few years that has created a flip, I agree, the Navy is so incredibly powerful. We are far behind on the hypersonic missiles, and those are very effective, and our, our current defense systems and radars just aren't 
calibrated for new hypersonic technology that Russia and China have surpassed us on. But I will say almost every other, we do have a very significantly superior Navy and Air Force. But Russia is a pretty formidable military power. And There's no doubt about that. I don't take the Russian threat lightly at all, as some people do. And I think, as we saw the other week, the, the hypersonic missiles they shot into Ukraine on the way took out... That took out some high-value targets. And that's why you didn't hear about it at all in the news, almost. Like, like oh, there was a hypersonic missile, and then nothing. Because they actually did get some very high-value targets, and I think that's going to start changing things, too. And, you know, I've gone out of my way not to absorb information about the conflict in Ukraine. <laughs> I've got a very strict policy of never looking directly at the PSYOP, mm -hmm. and this may have caused a knowledge gap for me because I actually don't even know what you're referencing there. So the other week, and this was very, it was not covered in the news almost at all, um, Russia sent several hypersonic missiles into Ukraine territory and took out several targets. And there's some conversations about what those targets were that may have been related to NATO. And that's why it was something that was kind of moved on and on. But we don't have the ability at the point, I don't want to say ability. Currently, we just, none of our systems are calibrated for hypersonic missiles. And it does change a lot, which is why many people, including Department of Defense, A lot of money to create new systems but hypersonic is a game changer because all of the nuclear war is just a game of mutual deterrence and mutual more than anything uh, the nuclear balance is a game of having equitable reaction times where you both know you are about equal and how you can react and that's what the START treaties are essentially about, which is why there has been so much friction, because as you start to develop things like hypersonic warheads, if you can deliver a hypersonic nuclear missile, that creates a fundamental imbalance, which is a pretty serious shift. And of course, we thankfully do have another major, I know some people are going to groan and roll their eyes, but I think Elon Musk is our most valuable national security asset at this point because SpaceX dominates the battlefield. Yeah, and I actually agree with you. I don't think people appreciate quite enough just what SpaceX and by extension Starlink mean to the U.S. government and its potential. In front of me, but even just the other day, in the this might be an interesting topic to bring up. There's specific programs mentioned in the plan for the American century paper that are almost word for word what are the faster the DOD came out with the systems they want 
seems to really truly be going to that way um, the things that were made fun of about Reagan and Star Wars but essentially this space-based matrix and system of protection and defense that is going to be very real and why Space Force was a military branch I think is very important because it was promoted it was something that was understood to be necessary by the 1950s now with this all being said and our conversation about Elon Musk yeah. Was this a fever dream, or did I read something a handful of days ago about him considering Tesla battery production options that were moving away from lithium? Was that him, or was that one of his competitors? I don't know exactly what you saw, but many of them have said because lithium is a bit of a conflict mineral. Um, I don't directly know, but I'm sh I would think he has because I've seen multiple people start talking about what are other quote-unquote green elements, green battery sources we can use. Um, there are several. I was, I was just wondering about that because I didn't know if it was him or if it was one of his competitors, but I saw it hit the news cycle with more intensity than it has in the past. I mean, the issue is we just, we actually want to have all these electric, the amount of lithium needed is astronomical if people want to have the forever growth economy that we do need. I think he's been considering, I think what he also, he's, I know we've talked about before, is can we refine lithium in the U.S. or how can we work on the supply chain because it's a very, especially with South America and with the current, again, South America possible realignments, it's where do you get the lithium? It's needed so much. And then I guess the other option is you can go mine asteroids for rare elements. Wow. I'm enough of a libertarian and enough of a sci-fi nerd to really be looking forward to that part of the future, frankly. It always cracks me up when they're like, oh, if we mined this asteroid, there would be enough gold on Earth for everyone to you know, have 50 pounds, but like, well, then it would be not worth it. <laughs> well, right, that would collapse global gold markets. Yeah, I guess for space, to me, it's where do we get... on earth the minerals and I feel like you start needing resources on earth a couple map a couple large-scale spaceships or mining operations get lost if you haven't at least recouped that while you're out there the earth is going to start it won't be a closed-loop system anymore and you sure a lot of yeah water. it's it's not ready to happen yet it's certainly not ready to happen yet but I want to hope and pray that by the end of my lifetime, we're at least getting close. I feel like there are plenty of smart people. I suppose you would need a new propulsion system to be discovered, too, if you went for that propulsion system. That seems to be. Yeah. And then you'd need a couple bases to use, like those jump bases that would have water and 
And that's why it's so important to get back to the moon and get back to Mars. For as many podcasts as I've been Mm -hmm. on, talking about how space is fake and the moon is a hologram, in my heart of hearts, I have to both think and hope that it is real for just that reason. This is interesting because the whole idea of flat Earth and things that are revealed in the closed system, I wonder because it's pushed on people so fervently, but why do people want to believe something that it, it diminishes their horizons? It almost seems like it, it's a psyop in itself to make you think like it's you're stuck on this tiny little speck and there's nothing beyond it. Plus, I don't think the Freemasons would fake creating a base on the moon. (laughs) Well, and the other thing (laughs) is, I don't even think the Freemasons are actually the threat that Internet Catholics think they are. I generally believe that the Freemasons are literally a boomer supper club, and at the highest levels, a farm league for every other secret organization. Oh, that's interesting. I know a couple Freemasons, and I keep my theory that they have them in politics. I don't know what you think they are. <laughs> That's why I'm not that impressed by them. It's all part of their plan to yeah. keep me unaware of their true affinities and knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I know a handful of Masons myself. They're actually swell people. Um... One of them, I'm not going to dox anything, but I have been passed more than one quote-unquote research paper that's been passed around in their research lodges. No names, and no And that might color through. my opinions a little bit. Oh no, you're, this is going to be the most controversial yet, sir. Getting into yes, it is. You know, not to toot my own horn, but I've got insiders, I really do. Anyway, I think that satellites are real. <laughs> Communication <laughs> satellites whiz above us. You know, people get very upset at me when I show pictures of rocket drones. Like, no, that's an alien spaceship. They're not. The Earth is flat. <laughs> I'm like, are the aliens also from flat planets? How does this work? It's a, it's an interesting, interesting, I guess, concept. Um, it's flat, so it's not real, so it's not alien. I don't understand. Yeah, extraterrestrial life doesn't actually fit with literally any alternative theory except itself. There's just no room for it in serious theorizing. They are either ultra-terrestrial as opposed to extraterrestrial, or they don't exist at all. I think that there's just my, this is just my personal insight, right? Maybe I think I think basically most of this supernatural, extraterrestrial stuff is just cover for terrestrial military projects. And the truly supernatural, in my opinion, I'm like, well, it's an angel or a demon, and neither of those are my business. So <laughs> I'm not gonna mess. So with true. That. <laughs> so true. I trust God on that one, and I'm not gonna go poke at any demons or angels. Mind my business. 
I say this and tomorrow we get the first one. The wow signal. The wow signal intrigued me. I don't know how to say that. Yes. Intrigued me. And, but in terms of, I always tell people, what is the fuel? Like, how is, what, why did a saucer cross the universe just to, like, hover over a, a silo in Illinois? Like, there's, most likely it's just for us to, to me, that's the why. And then I noticed the other week, I was laughing. I know it's not because of me, but Pentagon came out and said, because I always say, well, where's the mothership? What fuel did they use to arrive here? Pentagon the other week said, it's possible that there's a mothership in our solar system. And that's where the little ones are They are trying so hard (laughs) to push the UFO meme on us that you just know something else is going on. And like things like that object that came in that could have been a solar sail, even though someone who I know is very smart I was like that I could see I was like yeah that like makes sense like that that's the fuel source I just want to know what the fuel is and then they sat and did all the math and explained to me why 99.9% likely it really was just a like object like a rock but I, that I could see but the concept of solar yeah, sails themselves can't be ruled exactly. out those are based in hard and science. that's why I was willing on that I said absolutely because then that's like I want to know what's the propulsion if you can give me a logical propulsion I'll happily like entertain it but when it's just like oh it's a little saucer over here I'm not so sure I'm like how did it enter the atmosphere how does it leave the atmosphere like I, I need to know but that one did spike my interest because I don't know if you've read Arthur C. Clarke's Garden Obama series, but that was the plot, so that got me excited for that one. So this one certainly took an unexpected turn. <laughs> we uh, we are at approximately our traditional quitting point. But before I hang us up for the evening, yeah. I would like to ask... Yeah. You had mentioned to me that you had a different podcast coming up later this week. Yeah. Would it be possible to get a preview or a spoiler, or is that top secret? I don't even know what we're doing. They said I'm just going to throw it out at them. So I have no concept of what's happening. It's from Full House. I don't know if anyone's familiar with them. I... I've never even heard of them. No. I don't know what's going to happen. I just said, sure. Um, I suppose, I think people think I won't do them, but I will because nobody wants to. <laughs> they asked, and I said, absolutely. Well, I'll just show up, and I'll throw things at you, and I said, all right. I wish I could provide more of a explanation. Well, just <laughs> having been a guest on similar operations to that, stay on your okay, toes. Okay, so say, let's think like, <laughs> stay on my toes. Uh, well, I think you're a, at least a little bit out more outgoing than me, so that will probably help. <laughs> but when one of these guys says they're just going to throw anything and everything at right. you, expect that to be literally what they mean. I'm gonna be you will be jumping topics more than you thought possible. I'm going to go to the live. Ready. I'm excited, though. It's fun. Well, yeah, absolutely. All right. Any plugs? Anything else to say before we wrap up here? Um, no. I I'm just I want to see what happens tomorrow. 
out for people who don't know where oh, well, Monday night is before alleged uh, D-Day, so I guess we'll find out. I was talking to one of our mutual acquaintances about that earlier. Yes, what was there? Mr. Ranieri. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned, well, they made such a specific point of saying everyone was going to be in uniform. Yes. And I had tweeted earlier in the evening when that news first came out, well, was Umbrella Man supposed to be in full (laughs) uniform too in Minneapolis? I just want him to do what they prevented him from doing and send him to Davis and they recover from Corona and I want him to have a Superman t-shirt under his suit and then I want him when he exits to rip his shirt have the Superman What he needs to do is yell Q sent me from the courthouse steps is what he needs to do. I've had several people ask me why he's not tweeting yet like I like I know I don't know but honestly I was like he's He's cooking. Let him cook. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was like, I I want him to do the Superman t-shirt at some point, and I want him to just start posting, just appear, and I want him to be punished president. <laughs> <laughs> and just lean in. Anyway, maybe nothing will happen. Yeah. It may have just been a blended game as they completely restructured the global finance system on purpose. <laughs> well, yes, that... That's the other extremely real possibility, isn't it? That it was just another piece of bread and circuses. Because Wednesday is also Fed Day, and that's going to be very interesting. That is when we're going to... What if we arrest Trump to suck the oxygen out of that, huh? I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens, because I want to see if my theory is correct or incorrect about what's going to happen. So I'm I'm watching closely because there are different signals coming out from different very powerful people and I'm not sure which one is the correct one. So I'm very curious because it seems that there is a path the market has, there's a path Powell has, and there's a path that the Bank of International Settlements has. So I'm very curious to see because they told everyone last month to get on with it. And then Lagarde surprised everyone by bumping 50 basis points. So to me, 50 basis points seems to be a lot. Now there's a lot of inertia to it only being 25 or 0. So I could be completely wrong, but I would love to see what happens. Well, we will know the answer to that. Probably by the time this releases. Absolutely. You and I have a whole dump of episodes coming out at some point oh, this okay. week. Oh, okay. I was wondering. I was like, I thought that there were more. Okay, I'm excited. Everything you and I have in the backlog is going live sometime this Wonderful. week. Wonderful. I'm hoping for Wednesday. Could be Thursday or Friday. You know I'll let you know when it happens. Delightful. All right. Thank you again, Daddy. I look forward to doing this again with you at some point. Thank you so much for having me. Good night, everybody. Good night, folks.